In our study of the Lord's Supper, we've come to questions 78, 79, and 80 in our catechism. If you'd like to follow along, I'll read those with you also. Page 885 in the red hymnal. Page 885. And the question given us in question 78, do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And the answer given, no, just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. (coughs) Then question 79, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood? And Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. And do recall, congregation, that last week, Sunday evening, our text was from 1 Corinthians 10, which, is, which are the last words contained in this question, 79. And Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. That was the text last Sunday evening. So why does Paul use that language? And the answer given, Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. And question 80 continues on the same line. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross, once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven, at the right hand of the Father where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus, The Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. So far then, the Catechism. Last Sunday evening, dear congregation, we considered the glorious truth and incredible privilege that we have in the Lord's Supper, that we have this union with Christ. Now, of course, every believer from the moment he believes the gospel has this union with Christ. That, that union with Christ uh, is not given us at the Lord's Supper. It is given us when we believe in Jesus for the first time. However, it's at the Lord's Supper that this union with Christ becomes very fruitful, right? And the language of the catechism is the language of the catechism is that it uh, nourishes our uh, is the food and drink of our souls for eternal life. And in the previous question and answer, it says, that, the, that Christ nourishes and refreshes believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup. 
And what an astounding thing that is, my friends. What a deeply mysterious thing that is, that there is this union with Christ uh, that, is, uh, that becomes so powerful in our life and becomes so powerful in a unique way at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And that's why our fathers have called the union of a believer with Christ that takes place at the Lord's Supper a sacramental union. And again, as I said, that basically means Right? They, they, they have no other term for it because we don't know what it is. We cannot explain that. It is a mystery to us. And yet, for all that, it is what the Scripture teaches us. So a sacramental union. We are nourished by the body and blood of Christ. So we established last week, then, that we believe as Reformed people in the real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. The real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper, and not just in a general way that we know that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere, right? But that in a unique way, God comes down and visits us and touches us and feeds us, right? He, he spreads a table for us in a unique and a mysterious way. We believe in the real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. We take deep exception to those who want to say that the Lord's Supper is just a, a feast of memorial, that it is just a picture for us to see and to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Again, that's certainly true, not denying that, but it's much more than that. We saw that last week. We saw that last week when Paul uses those words, right, that we share or we participate, we have this union with the body and blood of Christ. Now, uh, the, the sermon then this evening becomes much more polemical or much more controversial as we try to dig deeper into that sacramental union. What is that sacramental union? We are joined to Christ in a unique way at the Lord's Supper. The natural question, and and, uh, parents, how many of our children haven't asked us, right, as the plate goes by, as the, especially as the cup goes by, right? The children always want to peer in there and say, what's in that cup, you know? It's a very naturally arising question, like, right, what happens to the bread and the wine? Does something happen to those elements that they're transformed into something that they weren't before? Well, that brings us then to the different understandings of this sacramental union. First of all, the Roman Catholic understanding. Now, on the outline, I put Two things there, bread and wine and Christ's body. Now, to understand the Roman Catholic view of this this sacramental union, you have to cross out bread and wine. You can just put an X through it. Because in the Roman Catholic understanding, when the priest says, and of course he says it in Latin, nowadays they say it in English, but it's much more impressive. Have you ever seen a Mass? I don't know if you've ever seen one. Uh, You should go see one sometime and, and, and see what happens. It's very impressive. It's very visually stimulating. And the priest stands there with his garments and he turns his back in the traditional mass and he turns his back like this and he says, Hec, or hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. And there's silence. And then a bell rings, at least at the one I was at. Ding, 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 a bell rang. And everybody fell on their knees. Oh, it was deeply impressive. I'll never forget it. I've only seen one in my life. And it was very impressive. Now, I didn't get on my knees, mind you, for reasons that I'll explain to you shortly. But at any rate, so it happened. And, and just the sight of that priest with his flowing, long, colorful garments on and his miter on his head and his hands outstretched 
It's deeply impressive. And then he took the cup and he held that up like this. It's something you can, you can certainly remember. But after he says those words of the institution, the Roman Catholics believe that the substance, and again, look at that word transubstantiation, the substance, see that word there? Trans, it changes. So that there's no bread and wine left, it's only Christ's body and blood left on the table. Now from that fact, right, as they understand it, flow a bunch of other things. Other things come out of that. First of all, if it's actually the body and blood of Christ, and again, try to follow me, if, if, try to put yourself in their shoes. If Congregation, if it really was the blood and, and body of Christ, would you not fall on your face too? Much less your knees? And that's why they worship the elements. And again, we're, I shouldn't even, in, in their understanding, they don't even see them as elements anymore. They see it as the body and blood of Christ. And of course, if that's really the case, then we should all get on our knees if it's not the body and blood of Christ, then of course you have what our catechism says, an accursed idolatry. Furthermore, uh, the Roman Catholics will not give the cup to the laity, to the people. So when the people participate in the Lord's Supper, they only receive the bread. They do not receive the wine. Again, if that's really the blood of Christ, it is something too sacred to be given to the normal people. You know, there was a story one time, children, that can kind of help you understand this, that one time there was a priest who was giving, who was uh, performing the mass, and uh, it was a hot day, and they had the window open, and lo and behold, wouldn't you know, a bee flew in the window. And that bee flew around for a little while, and he, he plucked up one of the pieces of bread which I don't know how he did that because in the Roman Catholic tradition it's a very stiff, hard wafer, but whatever, just follow the story here, okay? He picked up this crumb and to the horror of the people, this was after it had been transubstantiated, he flew out the window again. And so the people leaped up, they interrupted the service and they ran after that bee and they looked high and low for this bee. Again, if the story is starting to stretch your credulity a little bit, that's okay. It's a, it's a, a story. And they finally, they found this bee. And they, they opened up, they, they tore open the, the, the hive. And once you know, in that hive, that bee had, the bees had built an altar of wax. And on that altar was that crumb of bread that he had taken from the table. Now, by now, you're convinced that this is not a true story, and you'd be right. But still, it gives you a sense for just how sacred they see the elements of the Lord's Supper after they've been transubstantiated. Now, I also took with me, this is a, this is a account, I'm sorry, this is a catechism that children, Roman Catholic children, would learn. Listen to this, and this is a, in question and answer form, just like a catechism. And it says, how should we act while receiving Holy Communion? And the answer is, in the act of receiving Holy Communion, we should be kneeling, hold our heads slightly raised, our eyes modest and fixed on the sacred host, the host now being that, that bread, our mouth sufficiently open and the tongue slightly out over the lips. Question, uh, and then the next question is, how should the communion cloth be held? 
Evidently, the Roman Catholics take a cloth with them up to the table, and the communion cloth should be held in such a way as to receive the sacred host in case it should fall. So again, you would, you would hold a towel under your, as you waited for the priest to put that wafer upon your lips, and you hold the towel under you so that in case it falls, you can catch it, so that no desecration happens to the sacred host. When should the sacred host be swallowed, is the next question. We should try to swallow the sacred host as soon as possible, and we should avoid spitting for some time. Interesting, again, if you have the body of Christ in your mouth, you should avoid spitting for some time. And then this question that always interests me. If the sacred host should cling to the palate, in other words, if it should cling or stick to the roof of your mouth, what should be done? If the sacred host should cling to the palate, it should be removed with the tongue, but never with the finger. Now, I don't read those to, 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 make, uh, to make fun of the Catholics, but just to give you a sense for the, the, uh, the, the attitude that the Roman Catholics have towards these elements. Now, if I move to the Lutheran understanding, it's a, a bit more difficult because the Lutherans, they are not completely united. Even Philip Melanchthon, towards the end of his life, seemed to come much closer to a more reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper. But when you have the Lutheran, you can circle both things, bread and wine and Christ's body. Now, the Catholic believed that it was trans, right? It was changed. But the Lutherans say con or with, con substance. In other words, that the bread and wine remains there, but somehow the body and blood of Christ are joined to it in a very mysterious way. But that it really is both the physical body and blood of Jesus along with the bread and wine. The fundamental idea of the Lutherans here, well, and the Catholics too, really, is that there's something in the actual physical body of Jesus that does us good. Okay, so why are they so insistent upon this? Why was such a good man like Luther and Melanchthon and so many other good Lutherans, and actually many Roman Catholics too, who were devout Christian men in, 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 in all other respects, why did they come to this view? What, did they just make this up out of their mind? Well, that brings us to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So let's look more closely then at John chapter 6. At the very beginning of John 6, we have this account of the 5,000 being fed. In John 6, the 5,000 are fed. And Jesus now comes in verse 26, and he rebukes the people. He said, you're following me. Not because you saw the miraculous signs, the miracles I did, and because you want to know who I am as a person, my mission here, but you just want the food that I bring. You want the loaves that I gave. And then verse 27, John 6, verse 20, he says, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Well, Okay, so the people hear that, and they acknowledge it. And Well, what is that food that we should eat that endures unto eternal life? In other words, if I ate that food, I would be sustained and strengthened eternally, and I would never die. Well, then Jesus says twice, right, in verse 35, in the first place, verse 35, I am the bread of life. And later he says it again in verse 41. I, or verse 48, I am the bread of life. 
But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 51, he takes it a step deeper. Verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. Now, he'd already said that. But he says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Okay, he'd already said that as well. But then he says, and the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And now he puzzles the people that are with him. Now there's like, what does that mean, Jesus, that you're going to give us your flesh to eat? I think the, the crowd understood well enough that Jesus was the bread of life. They didn't like it. They didn't agree with it, right? But still, they could understand that he was the bread of life, that Jesus believed himself to have a message of salvation for people. And when they embraced that message, when they believed in him, they received eternal life. And Jesus compares himself to bread. When you eat this bread, in other words, when you believe this gospel, you are saved. And I will raise him up at the last day. But now they're disgusted, right? This is my first point here, that their reaction to this is disgust. In verse 52, then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now here's the point in verse 52, and that is clearly, friends, clearly the Jewish people understand Jesus to be speaking literally, that he in an almost cannibalistic way, is going to give them his flesh to eat. And that's why they're so disgusted with it. But in verse 53, so continue to follow me here, in verse 53, Jesus doesn't clear up their understanding, misunderstanding, he doesn't clarify. He, as if, doubles down on it even further. In verse 53, he says something And again, I I speak reverently here, but to to the people who heard it was even more disgusting. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Well, now you can imagine, my friends, that when the people hear this, they are completely mystified. And it's, it's interesting to us as well, as we try to understand what Jesus is saying here, that Jesus doesn't immediately, at least, work to clear up their misunderstanding. In fact, he, he takes it a step deeper and he adds on to his blood. You must drink my blood which again, to a Jewish person, would have been abhorrent. Because again, even in the Jewish law, right, they were forbidden to eat the blood. It was a terrible thing that Jesus was telling them to do here. Well, that moves me then to the Roman Catholic interpretation of this verse. Because the Roman Catholic interpretation is to take this as the Jews took it. They understand this to mean that Jesus is now going to really give his people And it's in the future, of course. It's not yet happening, but Jesus is making a promise that in due time, he's going to institute the Eucharist or the Mass or the Lord's Supper in which he is literally going to give them his blood to drink and his flesh to eat. And when they eat his flesh, when they drink his blood, they will have eternal life. That's how the Roman Catholics understand this. Now, of course, the Reformed understanding here is to take this as Jesus speaking in a metaphorical way. <clears throat> and as we grapple with this reform or this Roman Catholic understanding, 
Let me take you to some verses that give us a clue for how we're to understand Jesus here. Look with me at verse 27. John 6 and verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life. Now, my friends, already when we read that verse, we understand that we are in the arena of metaphor. There is no food that you could eat that would keep you alive forever. There is no literal, such literal food, right? We immediately transition in our own minds. We don't even think about it. But the minute we read about a food which endures to eternal life, we immediately and properly switch to a metaphorical understanding that this is a figurative way of speaking, that Jesus is not really bringing some food to them which they can literally eat with their teeth and they will never die. No, this is to be understood metaphorically. So already we know we're on the, we're, we, we've kind of switched in our minds to a hermeneutic or a, a way of understanding this text that involves metaphor or a figurative way of speaking. Now look at verse 35. Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Now my friends, Again, even Roman Catholics, Grant, this, this is a metaphor. Obviously, this is a metaphor. I am the bread of life. That is not a literal way of speaking. And everybody recognizes it to be this. And the way that Jesus certainly meant to be understood in this context was that the bread of life was a metaphor for the gospel that he brings, which we are to embrace, which we are to eat. Again, I've just switched to metaphor, right? And you, we all hear that. We immediately know that. Right? When I say believe the gospel, I'm speaking literally. When I say eat the gospel, I'm speaking metaphorically. Nobody needs me to say, now I'm speaking metaphorically. Now I'm speaking literally. We understand that. I look at verse 51. Verse 51. Which is where Jesus for the first time said that the bread that he's going to give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now here, instantly, the Roman Catholics interpret this as being a literal statement now. They immediately switch to literal interpretation, that Jesus' body really is going to be food. And I ask, why? What is there in this text that gave us a clue that now Jesus, he intends for us to be understood literally? Right? We, we, we know that, I mean, just the way we read text. Right? We, we've been trained, when we read and study the English language, we pick up on those things. When Jesus says, I am the door, none of us, that's foolish to even think of. So why would we begin now to understand this text as now it's literal, and that Jesus is literally going to give his flesh? Well, the Roman Catholics have an answer to this, and the Lutherans as well. And they say, well, because that is the way the Jews understood him. And Jesus never corrected their misunderstanding. You understand what they're saying? The, G the Jews were very upset with him. In fact, at the end of the chapter, we read that some of them would no longer walk with him. They said, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to follow this man anymore. He's, he wants us to eat his flesh. And so the Roman Catholics and some of the Lutherans will say, that proves that Jesus means for us to understand these words literally. But is that the case? Is that the case? I want to look with you now very closely at verse 63 because this is now a critical verse to understand this chapter. 
So after the disciples say, this is a difficult statement, they say that in verse 60, then we read in verse 61 that Jesus is conscious that his disciples are, are complaining, they're grumbling about this, they don't understand it either. And in verse 62, so start with me at verse 62, Jesus says, what then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words, or, or it could be translated, those words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Now here is where the reformers came back and said, this verse helps us to understand what Jesus was saying previously. And that actually in this verse, Jesus moves to clarify or to correct the misunderstanding of the disciples before. So I put on your outline there how, as Reformed people, we understand these verses. And again, I put in brackets, I kind of filled it in to help us understand it. You can read the text as it is in verse 63 in your Bibles, but I kind of put in brackets here. It is the Spirit, in other words, the Holy Spirit, not merely Jesus' flesh, that gives life. The actual physical flesh of Jesus profits nothing. In other words, it gives you no saving benefit. The words that I have just spoken to you are spirit and are life. In other words, are a life-giving spirit. That is the gospel. That is the reformed, and many Protestant interpreters would understand the text that way. And their contention then is that it is at this point that Jesus finally moves to correct the disciples' misunderstanding. But the Roman Catholics disagree. And they interpret it this way. And again, I, I put their understanding second there. They would say it is the Holy Spirit who gives life, in other words, which enables us or who enables us to understand these truths. The flesh, in other words, the human mind without the operation of the Spirit, without the work of the Spirit upon it, profits nothing, in other words, cannot understand these truths. The words that I have just spoken to you are spirit and our life or are dependent on the Spirit for understanding and our life, or they give eternal life. Now, my friends, here we have to say that there's nothing in the text. Well, we have to confess that the Roman Catholic understanding of verse 63 certainly is possible. In fact, we find in this text that Jesus said something very similar Yeah, in verse 65. If you look in your Bibles at verse 65, Jesus, verse 65 is really an argument for what the Roman Catholics have said. For this reason, Jesus says, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In other words, no one can come to me unless the Father works in him first. The flesh profits nothing. Simply a human flesh, simply a person with his own will and his own mind cannot come to God, cannot understand the truths that I'm teaching you, says Jesus. That's how the Roman Catholics understand verse 63. Now there's one indication that I think tilts it towards the more Reformed understanding. And that is this statement, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. It seems to me, my friends, and to, and to many others as well, that there Jesus says, the words that I have spoken to you, in other words, those words that I just spoke about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, those are the words that I'm helping you to understand here. And so that's how I think that text should be understood, that it really is saying that it's not Jesus' flesh, just as flesh, 
that's going to do you any good, but only the Spirit of God working spiritual life within you because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Now, that being said, my friends, many uh, expositors of these texts have pointed out that even if the Roman Catholic understanding of verse 63 is correct, it still doesn't teach transubstantiation. Right? We still can understand that when Jesus talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, he's still to be understood metaphorically. That he's not giving us a literal statement. But at any rate, that is the Catholic understanding of that text. Now, my friends, why spend so much time on this for a, for a controversy that took place so long ago? Does it really speak anything to us in this day? My friends, I think it does speak to us in our day. And it goes back to, our, to the reason why, as Reformed people, we reject this notion that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial feast. Something mystical, something deep and powerful happens to a believer at the Lord's Supper. And just because we can't explain it scientifically, just because I can't rationally and logically lay out exactly what takes place, and I know we always want that, don't we? Because we live in the 21st century, we have a scientific mind. But my friends, I can't explain that to you. Paul couldn't either. Remember, Paul said it's a great mystery. But for all that, are we willing to believe it? That's the Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper. That at the Lord's Supper, our union with Christ, which of course already exists because of our faith in Jesus, but at the Lord's Supper, you might say it is activated and it nourishes us and it strengthens us and we're refreshed by it. I think John 6, verse 56 really gives us the, uh, the clue to how we should understand this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That reciprocal abiding. We abide in Christ and Christ abides in us. Now again, my friends, I, I don't know that I can say anything else about it, about it than that. And maybe it's just good for us this evening to stick with the language of the scripture. Christ abides in us and we abide in him. And that as a result of that, we receive so much spiritual benefit. Herman Bavink asked that question there on the outline and you can read that for yourself. I think he makes a wonderful point. I want to continue on, though, to these four points at the end here. Because of what we believe about the Lord's Supper, my friends, it behooves us then to think seriously about how we act at the Lord's Supper. What do we do? What should our thoughts be? And I tried to make that clear uh, last week, my friends, that at the Lord's Supper, we are called upon not to be passive, not to be passive and to receive, but to be active in faith, to reach out the hand of faith, the empty hand of faith, and to take what God gives us. And I found it so interesting this week as uh, I, I remembered reading this before, the old Puritan author Richard Baxter, and he, he wrote a huge book, and he has a chapter in there on the Lord's Supper. And it's very interesting to me, very uh, edifying, I believe, to read what he says there, because he puts into your mouth Again, not the exact words that you should use, right? That's going to vary from time to time. But he, he puts into words this activity of faith, reaching out at the Lord's Supper and taking the gifts that God gives us. He says this, 
uh, I'm going to skip preparation. I'm running out of time here, so let, let me move right to participation. He says this. He says, when the minister delivereth you the consecrated bread and wine, look upon him as the messenger of Christ. Hear him as if Christ by him said to you, take this, my broken body and blood, and feed on it to everlasting life, and take with it my sealed covenant, and therein the sealed testimony of my love, and the sealed pardon of your sins, and a sealed gift of life eternal, insofar as you sincerely consent unto my covenant and give up yourselves to me as my redeemed ones. What a way to think about the Lord's Supper, my friends. That as the elders come with a tray of bread or with a tray of wine, that they're delivering up to you a lost sinner condemned by the justice of God, a sealed pardon. Remember last week I said it's as if we stand with a rope about our neck. But now the elders come to you as a messenger of Christ. And they say, friend, do you need this? Here is a message from the king. It is a paper that when you open it, has a seal stamped on it. From the king of kings and the lord of lords. And it says, all your sins forgiven you for the sake of Christ. And my friends, it, it doesn't just say for sinners on there. No, it says your name. Your name, a sealed pardon to you personally. Baxter continues. He says, O oh, matchless bounty of the eternal God, what a gift is this? And unto what unworthy sinners? And will God stoop so low to man? And come so near him, and thus reconcile his worthless enemies? Will he freely pardon all that I have done, and take me into his family and love, and feed me with the flesh and blood of Christ? Lord, I believe. Help mine unbelief. I humbly and thankfully accept thy gifts. And Baxter goes on, he says, and when you see the others, right? We don't just see ourselves partaking of communion. And when you see the others, he says, when you see the communicating, the communicants receiving with you. Let your very hearts be united to the saints in love and say, how goodly are thy tents, O Jacob. How amiable is the family of the Lord. How good and pleasant is the unity of brethren. How dear to me are the precious members of my Lord. Though they have yet all their spots and weaknesses, which he pardoneth, and so must we. As for the saints that are in the earth, they are the excellent in whom is all my delight. What portion of my estate thou requirest, I willingly give unto the poor. And if I have wronged any man, I am willing to restore it. And seeing thou hast loved me an enemy, and forgiven me so great a debt, I heartily forgive those that have done me wrong, and love my enemies. O oh, keep me in thy family all my days, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. And the doorkeepers in thy house are happier than the most prosperous of the wicked. And then Baxter says, upon reflection, upon returning home, and when you reflect on what took place in church that morning, reflect upon the covenant that you received. Live out of the grace that you've received. And then, my friends, this all-important quote. I put this on your outline because I want you to see it with your own eyes. This is so true, my friends. 
yet judge not of the fruit of your receiving so much by feeling as by faith. For more is promised than you yet possess. Yes, my friends, as I said last week, there are those times when we participate in the Lord's Supper and as as if our soul is brought to heaven and we see and we believe and we sense the presence of Christ in such a uniquely precious way. But let's be honest, my friends, that's not the norm, is it? Many times we come and go without those kinds of feelings. But my friends, we still have eaten the body of Christ. We still have drunk his blood. We still have put our faith in the atonement. There still happened that union with him at the table when we participate in the sacrament. Whatever we may have felt, it still took place. And you can reflect upon that with so much joy and with so much gladness. And we must not think that somehow God has failed us when we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we feel nothing. Now that might be something for us to reflect on. Did we prepare for the Lord's Supper properly? Did we ask? Did we pray? Did we ask God to come and bless us? Again, all those things we can reflect upon. But at the end of the day, my friends, whatever we may have felt at the table of the Lord, a union took place there. A sacramental union. Not physically with Christ's body, but spiritually with the atonement and with the sacrifice that he has made. And so much more is promised us than we yet possess. And what a beautiful thing, my friends, that is to think that there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will spread a table in the New Jerusalem. And he will invite sinners. He will invite the Edomites that we had this morning. All those who fail in so many ways. And the sealed covenant that he gave us here in time will then be brought to its perfect fruition. We'll sit down at a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and rejoice in union and communion with God and to a never-ending eternity. Now, my friends, there is cause for rejoicing. And there is cause for feeling. And we can reflect upon that every time we participate in communion. May God give us such an experience of his love every time that we sit at his table. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you at the close of this service. And Lord, as we've reflected now on the Lord's Supper for several evening services, we are amazed, O God, at how lightly we have taken the Lord's table, at how casually we've participated in it. And Lord, we do pray for forgiveness for this sin. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us a new and a fresh appreciation for the mystical, sacramental union that takes place every time we eat the body of Christ and we drink his blood. Just bread and wine. And it stays bread and wine. But it is a symbol of something so great and of so amazing. Our catechism has taught us that as surely as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, so surely is the sacrifice of Christ applied to my soul and for the forgiveness of all my sin. Lord, what a wonder this is. What a blessing it is. Especially, Lord, after this morning, when we reflected upon our own shortcomings in so many ways of following you and of our practical atheism that so often marks our walk with you. Lord, what a blessing it is to hear about this rock that we can take our stand upon and find a full and a free forgiveness from all our sin. Lord, will you work these things in our hearts and lives 
And we pray that you will work also a desire in our young adults, our young people, the children of the congregation, that they too would earnestly desire to eat this Passover with us, that they too would desire by faith to take the body of Christ and his blood and to stake the whole salvation of their soul upon it. Lord, will you remember us then in your mercy and bring us safely to our homes this evening. Bless the young people as they gather. We pray, Lord, for a good meeting and that your name would receive the honor and the glory from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's turn to number 435 in the red hymnal. Number 435, where we hope to sing, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. And in verse 2, Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. And what follows then in, uh, let's sing all five verses of 435 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.